0: Hello, welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host today, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing and my hallowed honor to be in dialogue with Lauren K. Johnson. She is an Air Force veteran, and she is the author of the memoir, The Fine Art of Camouflage, a memoir, published in Liberty, North Carolina by Millspeak Books, 2023. Lauren, I'm extraordinarily lucky to be in dialogue with you today.
1: It is my pleasure. Thank you so much, Ari.
0: Can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life catalyzed the person you would become as an adult and the rudder you are today?
1: Absolutely. So I grew up in the Seattle area, which is where I'm now based, but I got back here on kind of a circuitous route so growing up in Seattle, I had a, a military family. Both of my grandfathers served in the World War II era. My mother served as a nurse in the Army Reserves and deployed in support of Operation Desert Shield Desert Storm when I was seven years old. So obviously, that was a formative experience in the life of young Lauren in a lot of ways. First and foremost, having my my mother suddenly disappear as a seven-year-old was traumatic to say the least she was a reservist this was a different era than the military that I went on to serve in when deployments were not the norm they weren't predictable by any means and I wasn't privy to all of this information as a seven-year-old but her deployment was for an undetermined length of up to two years and in addition to myself I have uh, an older sister who turned nine while my mom was gone and then a younger brother who was just about two so Thinking about all of that in hindsight and what my mom had to go through to, you know, suddenly be plucked away from that family just blows my mind every time I think about it. So as a seven-year-old from that perspective, of course, I was heartbroken having my mom gone, but then she came back and was heralded as as a hero, as were all of the returning troops from Desert Storm. In hindsight, that was a relatively quick and decisive conflict, so for me, that really shaped in a lot of ways my understanding of what it meant to, to be in the military and to be at war. Fast forward a few years to 9-11 and the swell of patriotism that swept the country at that point, even here in the Pacific Northwest, where we weren't directly impacted by by the Twin Towers and, and the Pentagon and all of the really frontline events of, of that day, we felt the, the emotional impact of them and, and that that sweep of patriotism just felt to me very similar to what I had experienced as a seven year old watching my mom leave and then return home and get this hero's welcome. And that is the event that I identify looking back as really what kind of unleashed this this desire in me to to go on and and join the family business for for lack of better words and and to you know be a part of that effort to to do something noble and you know greater than than myself so i joined college on an rotc scholarship got a full ride to my dream school on the beach in california which you know also didn't hurt with my motivation as an 18 year old and after 4 years there i commissioned as a second lieutenant in the air force And got stationed on another beach in Florida. So got a a pretty good draw when when it came to my first years in the in the military. And then eventually, as I was surrounded by all of these people in special operations, the base where I was stationed, just that that desire to serve just continued to grow in me. And I felt like I wasn't really doing that in the meaningful way that I wanted to be doing it while I was like sitting in my air-conditioned office and writing press releases. I I wanted to be more a part of the action. So I ultimately volunteered to deploy to Afghanistan on a provincial reconstruction team.
0: Where do you do your writing? In your house, somewhere else, at a desk, on the couch?
1: (laughs) Um, All of the above. (laughs) I I work from home. So I have a home office and that's my most comfortable setup when, when I do writing as well. But sometimes after sitting at my desk, staring at my computer all day, I don't feel real motivated to continue sitting at my desk, staring at the same computer to do my writing. So I'll hop around, break out my laptop. Um, Occasionally I'll get out a a pen and paper and scribble that way. But I found that um, I'm rather out of practice for handwriting and my, my hand gets very sore very quickly. I'm also a lefty, so I like smear everything that I'm writing, and doesn't really translate to then understanding what I've written in retrospect. Um, I will say I have found a lot of value in getting out of my everyday environment to write, which is not always feasible. But when I have an opportunity, I've gone on a couple writing residencies where. It, your job is basically to write and you've got a community of folks around you supporting you in that effort, which is amazing. And I would do that, you know, once a month if I could, but alas, being a responsible adult and, and a parent mm-hmm. is not is not always compatible with that. Um, so I've like holed up in an Airbnb for a week or so, uh, particularly when I was in really intense moments writing my manuscript, or if I was, um, you know, doing, doing a bout of editing, that kind of thing. It's nice to have that That's separation where I can really just focus on that without, you know, toddlers or cats running into the room and bothering me.
0: Do you edit at the end or as you go along?
1: I am an as I go editor. I I had a writing teacher once who said there are two types of writers and, and you can liken them to two types of cooks. Like there are some people who just make a horrible mess in the kitchen as they're going and then clean it up after they're done cooking and then there are people who have to clean as they go and i'm definitely a, a clean as you go i don't necessarily think that that's the best approach because it does disrupt the flow of ideas so when i do break out the pen and paper and and do hand written stuff part of part of the idea behind that is to really just let myself write because it's much harder to do that as you go editing when you're when you're writing as opposed to when you're typing and can easily delete and copy paste, those kind of things. So I'm a tidy as you go, but, um, trying to become a a tidy after the fact writer.
0: What aspects of your writing process were most challenging for you? How did you handle these adversities? What aspects of your writing process were most therapeutic for you? How did you grow?
1: Oh, great questions. Um, I think for me, part of the challenge is I, I deal with some, some pretty heavy content. You know, my, Deployment was not, you know, all butterflies and rainbows. <laughs> um, there, there were certainly some, some happy moments and some, you know, lighter moments that I wanted to make sure to capture in the book. But there were also some, some moments that were really, really challenging to live through. And in writing about those moments, you have to really put yourself back into that space in order to capture them genuinely and the process of just getting myself into that space w- w- was hard. It, usually once I was there, I I could handle it pretty well, but just, you know, making that conscious decision to, to jump back in time and put yourself in that emotionally vulnerable, raw state it, is a big barrier to get through. But at the same time, it can be cathartic. And so to answer the second part of your question, writing is... how i process things that's always been the case you know i I didn't mention that in in my um you know formative experiences growing up but I've, i've always fashioned myself a writer like i used to you know write really cheesy poetry i mean you know who didn't as an angsty teenager i also would like as a kid walk around in the backyard talking to myself and when my mom asked what i was doing i said i'm writing books my my brain just just works in that way and that's so writing has always been the way that I've I've processed things and going through the experience of writing a book is kind of like a big fat decade long therapy session in in a lot of ways and it comes in phases you know there's that initial urging of the experience and then to go back to our you know tidying uh, metaphor that's the the tidying and sorting through that initial kind of blah is where, where it becomes something tangible that then I can shape into something that's less emotionally charged for me and into something that means something hopefully and and can resonate with other people.
0: Can you summarize your book for us?
1: Sure. So it's, um, war is, is definitely a, a, a prominent experience in the book, um, from multiple perspectives from from my mother and her service and and how that impacted me as a child. And then, of course, with my own deployment. So it's really a coming of age against the backdrop of war. My my growing up and hearing stories of family lore and seeing my mom's experience and that building up the understanding for me of, of what what that all meant and then joining myself and finding myself in Afghanistan where those expectations clashed very harshly with reality. And that was a, a time and a place where I just learned that things are much more complicated, than they're not black and white. And that's, you know, not just related to war, but but to life as a whole. You know, there, there's a lot of gray areas. And I had to recalibrate how I viewed the world through, through what had previously been a very black and white lens.
0: What does this book teach us about trauma and suffering?
1: I hope that it helps to communicate that, well, first, everyone experiences uh, trauma and or suffering to some degree. And that's, that's certainly not something that the military has a monopoly on. And I think that oftentimes when it is discussed, when, when trauma and, and military trauma specifically is discussed, it's discussed in a, a very sensationalized way and we get these these boxes that everyone's experience is tried tries to get mushed into you know you you were in combat you you killed somebody you were a victim of military sexual trauma of course those are those are traumatizing experiences and those are very valid storylines that that need to be told and need to be discussed but that is not the whole military experience and that is not the whole experience of trauma in reality most of us who have served and, and most of us who, who are human and experience trauma and suffering fall somewhere in the middle of the spectrum. We don't have one of those extreme experiences. So part of part of my hope in, in writing this book is to share a story of someone who is in the middle and how that experience impacted me, how I found my footing again afterwards. There's so much stigma around mental health care still in the military, and I... Kind of hit hit my rock bottom and self-referred to the mental health clinic on my Air Force base, which was not an easy thing to do. You know, I, I walked in there, in my uniform with my name tag, with officer's rank. I was, you know, I, I felt like there was a big spotlight shining on me. Like, here's an officer who, who can't can't cut it, can't handle it, and nobody should feel that way when when they're suffering. Nobody should need their suffering to be justified. And I hope that in sharing my experience and encouraging more conversation around those types of topics. Even one person out there can you know, not feel quite so alone in a similar experience.
0: Can you tell us about your twins born in July of 2021? What do you plan to tell your twins about your time in the military when they're able to understand?
1: That's something I've been thinking a lot about the last couple of years. Um, my my girls were born two months before the withdrawal of, of U.S. forces from Afghanistan, which actually became the epilogue of my book. And for me, that was a time when I really was forced to confront what I'd been through in a different in a different way if, uh, from the perspective of a mother and thinking about my mother and the types of questions that that she had to wrestle with when I decided to serve when I started asking questions, when my siblings and I were at different ages and and my parents were thinking about, you know, how much to tell us and and when to tell us things about, about war and about the world in general, you know, what does it mean to protect a child? And and at what point does protection become sheltering from the realities of life? So I I was thinking a lot about those things as the girls were, you know, Newborns, and um, thankfully, I have a, a few years before I I need to really coalesce my thoughts. Um, and now I have a book, so I can just, you know, have them read my book, and then they'll know everything about me. Um, but honestly, I I would like to say that I will tell them everything. I don't know that that's realistic because everything. I mean, how do you even frame that? Um, it, it's a hard thing to to talk about something as big and impactful as being at war. And that was one of the things I really struggled with when I got home was if people would ask me, oh, how was your deployment? What did you do? And I didn't know how to answer that in, in a way that would be satisfying to them. You know, people don't want to just sit there and hear you blubber ab- about something like that for for hours, which I could have done. And that's why I wrote a book about it, because you know, it, it takes a book to flesh out that experience and, and communicate what it means. It, it's not something that can be captured in, in a tidy soundbite. I mean, clearly, I'm like, <laughs> I, I've been rambling for a while now about the subject. But to, to boil it down, I really, I want to have open dialogue with my daughters. And I want them to to know all the layers of their mother. You know, that my experience in Afghanistan was... Was a formative experience uh, in a lot of positive ways. I, I learned a lot about myself through the military and through my time in Afghanistan, and I I grew in a lot of ways. And I also was involved in some things that that I regret, and I don't want to shy away from those types of difficult conversations with the girls.
0: How would you evaluate your mental health today in April 2023? How about your struggles? changed and evolved?
1: Oh, well, let's see. Um, we're still in a pandemic and the world is imploding in many ways. So um, I, I would say my my mental health is about as good as could be expected considering the world we live in and as a mother to, to two young daughters and wanting nothing more than to keep them safe. Um, in terms of how I've grown over the last decade plus since I served in Afghanistan, there's been a lot of self-reflection. I really do think that that is the impetus of, of a lot of growth just as humans, is thinking about where we've been and what it means and how we got there and where we want to go from here and the lessons we can learn and how we can you know forge ahead in, in the most meaningful way. And Writing a book is is a good way to to help with that. Um, I actually had a therapist one time who told me, "Oh, you have a really good understanding of how your past has shaped your perspective on things." And I was like, "Yeah, hey, writing a, a memoir will do that for you." So I have, I've I've learned to, I guess I'll, I'll say, be a little more cynical. Uh, I was definitely idealistic when I went into my time in Afghanistan, and I think that's that's part of growing up is just recognizing that you know you're probably not going to just hold hands and sing kumbaya and change the world. Unfortunately, that's just not the nature of the world. So figuring out, you know, my my place in all of that and trying not to be overwhelmed by all of the horrible things that that are part of existence these days and and focus on the the positive things and you know try to just make the most of of every moment with my family, which is is a big focus of mine right now.
0: How can this memoir benefit other military families?
1: I hope that it, like I said before provides a, a different perspective that not just for for service members themselves who've maybe been through one of those less extreme traumatizing experiences that that we hear more about, but also for for family members you know I, I kind of have the unique vantage point in that I have a foot in a number of different camps as a veteran myself, as a, a daughter of a veteran. I was also married to a veteran who experienced post traumatic stress disorder. Um, we're no longer together, but I have experience in, in that caretaker role yeah, and what it means to be, you know, two two veterans together, um, which is not always a, an, an easy thing to do. So I, I hope that you know really at the core that this book helps people to just have those difficult conversations, and to also just acknowledge all of the, the competing information that we're fed every day, especially now with with social media and and mass media. You know, a big thing that I I really honed in on as I was writing was that so much of my growing up years and so much of my my perspective, as I was on the threshold of of adulthood was shaped by, by stories, by stories that my family told about military service, that the community told around their service, the the stories that we saw in Hollywood, that came in the media, and even those that I was told when I was in the military, or about this specific deployment I was going on. Or from the book, Three Cups of Tea by Greg Mortensen. Um, I don't know if, if you've read that as a a memoir about uh, an American mountaineer who ended up building schools in Afghanistan and Pakistan came out a couple years before I deployed and was almost used as like required reading for people doing the, the types of deployment I was doing, which was likened to the work Greg Mortensen was doing and, you know, capacity building, building up infrastructure, increasing access to basic services. But it's much more complicated than that. Um, and so I hope that. My story will help others to just recognize all of the competing information sources and the filter that our brains have to put all of these things through and, and cobble together into this perspective of how we view the world. And, you know, we all have stories that we tell about ourselves. We tell ourselves who we want to be. We, we shape this persona. We, we adjust what that persona is based on you know, what other people expect of us. I mean, I'm assuming most people do that I certainly do and I have I've spent my life doing that trying to you know be what everybody else wants me to be and that that ends up being many things and just recognizing that and taking everything with a grain of salt and and honing in on you know your your own authenticity. um I think that's a, a part of what I was hoping to accomplish in writing the book and what I would like to encourage others to do as well.
0: What does your book teach us about the Military history of the U.S. war in Afghanistan. How does it emil- illuminate what Americans often do not know about the conflicts in Afghanistan?
1: I think one thing that makes my story unique, and I won't say unique in terms of all of the military stories that exist, but in unique in the stories that we really hear about, is that I I wasn't a, a combat soldier. So all you know, I wasn't. Um, like one when, when those American sniper or one of those movies that, you know, gets made and, and builds up this heroic persona. I was essentially a bureaucrat and I was in a combat zone. And even though my mission wasn't one of combat, I was trained to engage in combat should I need to. We went everywhere with a security detail. I carried two weapons, never used them, thankfully. But the the flip side of war where you're, you're not trying to win the war by By killing bad guys but by eroding the support for the bad guys and building up support of more legitimate systems like we were hoping the afghan government would be and you know building medical clinics and and schools and increasing access to education so kind of like the the the, the sing kumbaya and and shake hands and and kiss babies um although of course that's a very simplified version simplified version but more and more that is what warfare is becoming and that's what counterinsurgency efforts are all about and i think still there's this conception when people think of the military they think of the the go in and and shoot type military and there's so much more to it than that at the same time um it's I, i keep coming back to this but it's just it's very complicated and that was something that i even being plopped in the middle of the war zone didn't really grasp was was how immensely complicated it is. In Afghanistan, for example, it's complicated simply because of the geography. It's a very mountainous country. It's a a tribal society, has been for for centuries. So you get these little pockets of different villages that all have different tribal allegiances. There's different ethnic groups. So trying to put a a democratic system as we think of democracy in the west as an overlay there it just doesn't fit inherently because of the way the country is at, at a geographic level and a, at a political and economic level you know you, you can work with a farmer to try to rotate crops to promote you know future sustainability and in- increase their their cash flow but at the core, these farmers are really focused on you know subsistence farming and how am I going to feed my family this winter? So that kind of long term thinking is just not ingrained in society the, the way that it is out here in the West. So, you know, wh- one size fits all warfare is, is definitely not not the answer. Um, and I won't say that was 100 percent what what was attempted with with the provincial reconstruction teams in Afghanistan, but we definitely encountered a lot of instances where we were, we were doing one thing that had worked well somewhere else and just found that, you know, this doesn't fit here. And so a lot of it ended up being kind of make it up as we go.
0: Can you say more about Afghanistan's geography? Can you describe its aesthetic geography, its strategic geography? And its political geography.
1: Oh boy, um, there, there's a lot going on in Afghanistan, and the the mountains play a huge role in in all of that. So you've got, you know, mountain ranges just inherently dividing the country, and by virtue of that, you, you get, as I mentioned, these these pockets of of civilizations that, in in many cases, haven't interacted with people outside their their ethnic group. Um, because access is just so so scarce. Uh, as a military unit, you know, we part of our goal was to bring government leaders out to outlying regions in in the province where I was focused. I was in a very mountainous region. Um, our base was located in a valley at 8,000 feet, so you know, pretty pretty high base level, and still surrounded by mountains. And a lot of the people in outlying districts had never. Met their their governing governing body. They didn't necessarily know that they had a local government who was there to listen to their concerns. So part of our role as as the military partners of these of these uh, government officials was to bring them out so they could meet their constituents and listen to them. And again, easier said than done. Um, you know, some of the missions that we worked on were building roads so that we could get out to outlying districts. But oftentimes we had to bring uh, the government leaders by helicopter because there just was no other way to access or roads were so dangerous because they were you know going through insurgent territory there was a lot of issues where you know American and coalition forces and and aid workers would come in and you know with good intentions try to set up these construction projects to increase infrastructure and access to basic services but in doing so would disrupt the the local political or economic or tribal um, area by, for example, bringing in workers from one ethnic group to a territory that was uh, the, the property of another ethnic group and therefore, you know, kind of undermining that local system or by paying Security workers for Afghan security forces more than local uh, tribal folks were were offering. so so there just were a lot of competing things, and it it ended up being a very very complicated environment to try to try to do anything just because of the the geography and the just just the the mindset is so vastly different from from what we're used to in the West.
0: What does your book reveal about morale in the u s. army? during the Afghan war?
1: Well, I speak from, from, from my perspective um, and, and interacting with other people, so I certainly don't claim to speak for, for everyone. Um, I, I was an Air Force officer and I deployed with the Army. So I, I worked with predominantly Army folks, though there were other Air Force on my team as well. And by the time I was there in 2009, 2010, there was a lot of discontent among folks that, that I encountered in the military, and, and certainly among myself, and that feeling grew the longer I spent there, and just wondering what our purpose was, what our mission was. There there was a lot of, I mentioned making it up as we go, and, and that's a hard thing to do when you're in that environment, and my job, for example, was information operations, so I was doing the governance mentorship and capacity building on the communication side working with Afghans who worked in media and the communications director of the province they had a very limited media infrastructure which was also complicated by geography because radio waves you know bounce off the of mountains and and you can't get messages through they have no mass media so yeah tv broadcasting was not something that that we could do of the population was illiterate, so we couldn't have newspapers or or pamphlets that were widely read. So all of these complications and nuances and lack of understanding and lack of guidance for me and for many other people just contributed to a lot of frustration. And we had some, some instances while I was deployed where some of that frustration came out. In media interactions not with my unit specifically but in other other units based throughout afghanistan and the the leadership that i reported to didn't like seeing those kind of stories um because they felt like it didn't portray the the nuanced approach of, of what it meant to be in a war zone and that you know folks with discontent there's an outlet for that in the military you need to go you know talk to the right channels the problem is those channels don't always work or aren't always receptive. Um, and it's it's become, I think more common knowledge now, and we're all aware of the the complications of of the efforts in Iraq and Afghanistan. but there there were some efforts to, you know shut up and 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 deal with it in in a lot of ways, which is also a necessity of how the military operates. Uh, you know when you're in a a war zone and you have to be focused on, doing your job and and your job in combination with other jobs means survival. You can't afford to start pondering the greater, you know, psychological and political implications of what you're doing because that'll paralyze you. And I think a lot of the challenge really comes when those thoughts sneak in. And then when you are out of that environment and you have a chance to really think about that, and it just kind of, it's like, you know, what what was maybe a, a drip from the faucet while you were there becomes just this, this overwhelming flow. And it's a really hard thing to process in that, in that environment.
0: Can you tell us about provincial reconstruction team Paktia?
1: Yes. So the provincial reconstruction team I was on, um, Paktia Province is a southeastern province in Afghanistan on the Pakistan border. And it was actually the very first provincial reconstruction team in Afghanistan, founded in 2003. And at the time I was there, there were, I believe, 26 PRTs operating throughout Afghanistan, each in a different province. And about half of those were run by U.S. forces. So the other half by by international forces. And our goal was to work in Paktia province specifically to, to build up that government capacity and, and infrastructure. So as I mentioned, my, my role was working with the communications officials. We had folks who were working on uh, we had a civil affairs team who were National Guard soldiers who all had expertise in different non-military occupations. Like we had a guy who whose expertise was in, in forestry. So he was working in one of the more rural districts and helping them you know, develop good forestry practices. I like to you know, prevent erosion off of sides. We had civil engineers who who helped uh, with the the local construction projects, contracting out those projects and mentoring the the workers there to you know build sustainable construction uh, efforts. So it's 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 a very you know, different mission than than you're used to seeing in the sense that we were really interfacing directly with with the local people and and trying to help them help themselves as opposed to you know, sweeping in there with with guns blazing. Although we did sweep in there with guns, um, and prepared to blaze them when necessary, um, but but more o- overarching, our, our mission really was more of a, a bureaucratic one, and and trying to to work with the local population to to understand their needs and respond to those needs and help them you know, build up their own capacity so that eventually we could leave and there there wouldn't be a vacuum, um, which unfortunately, as we know, um, in the last couple of years, didn't happen.
0: Can you tell us about your mom?
1: My mom. uh, My mom has always been my hero. So she, as I mentioned, is deployed when I was seven years old. And um, it felt like my my person had been suddenly plucked out of my life. Um, When she got back, because that had been such a trying experience for our family, we all kind of made an an unofficial family pact that no one else would join the military because one deployment was enough for us to go through. So here I am breaking that pact. Um, And my mom, my mom has just always been a a tremendous supporter for me. She, I I mentioned thinking about the same kind of questions that she must have been wrestling with when I accepted my scholarship and joined the military and then volunteered to deploy. She, we've talked a lot about this in recent years, and and she couldn't, in good faith, turn me away from a decision that she had made herself. She went through college on on a scholarship as well with the military and, like me, got a lot of positive things out of her experience. So she was very proud of me when I joined, and she supported me in that decision, trusted me to make the decision that was best for me which, you know, I, I, I can't say that as an 18 year old, I really understood what that meant, but I just, my, my mom has done so much to, to help me be, help me learn as much as I can and, and make informed decisions to the extent that any parent can. And she's really the the critical person in, in launching my healing process. When I got back, Um, she, didn't have the luxury of the supportive infrastructure of a base when she, when she got back from her deployment, because she was a reservist, she was just thrust right back into her life as a a nurse at a private hospital and as a mother of three and as a wife and didn't really get time to decompress or figure out all the swirls in her head. So she just, she jumped right back in and repressed a lot of things that she had struggled with. And it wasn't until I got back from Afghanistan and started opening up to her, which didn't happen right away. I, I had to get some I, I went to the the mental health clinic on base and was encouraged to to talk to my mom because the the therapist thought that she might understand more than I was giving her credit for, and of course she did. And that initial conversation with her, where I, Opened up. Um, I don't know how coherent I was through my sobbing, but my mom really then started opening up herself too and sharing things about her experience that she hadn't shared with anyone in 20 years. And that for me was the beginning of my understanding that there's a lot that connects humans in trauma. And, you know, my mom and I had a lot of similarities in our experiences, even though. They were decades apart in different countries, in different services, Army and Air Force, in different jobs. She was a nurse. I was public affairs and information operations. So many differences. But yet that that emotional core of the experience had a lot of similarities. And the more veterans I talk to, the more I find that to be the case. You know, there's a saying, you know, every war is different. Every war is the same. And I have found that very much to be the case. And I will expand it to include every human experience. And I think that's part of what I love about writing as a medium and and nonfiction writing specifically is that you can hone in on that that emotional core. And you know someone who has never been in Afghanistan, has never been in the military, hopefully can find elements of my story that they can relate to as well.
0: How did your parents cope with your deployment?
1: Um, as well as parents could be expected to, I think my mom did Let it slip one time um, in a phone discussion when I called from Afghanistan that it was more difficult for her having me deployed than when she herself had been deployed. And that was the closest I came to crying to my parents on the phone. I I really tried to bite back my emotions and not worry them because I knew they were worried because their daughter was in a war zone. I, I, you know, inherently understood that. And I, I definitely censored what I what I shared with them and what I shared with anyone to protect them, as I told myself. And of course, also, as I think back on it, to protect myself. But I, I can't imagine now, as a mother myself, sending a child off into that environment. And my mom and I have talked a lot about this too. When you are there, you know you're safe at any given moment. The threat is always looming, but you know I know here I am sitting at my desk, I'm okay. There are so many layers of of unknowns for the folks back home, just, just wondering and waiting. And that, that limbo is a really, really difficult space to be in.
0: Can you comment on your paternal and maternal grandparents? What role did they play in your life? What role do they play in this memoir?
1: Both of my grandfathers served in the military. My dad's, dad was an air force chief master sergeant which is the highest enlisted rank and my mom's dad was a navy commander uh lieutenant commander oh if you listens to this he's gonna be mad at me for forgetting his exact rank um and they my, my family has always been been very close i saw my grandparents at pretty much every holiday they came to my swim meets as i was growing up they came to my school plays We've always been a very close family. And the military, I won't say was like ever present in our lives or in our conversation as a family, but it was always there. You know, there was just this general air of patriotism throughout our family and, and you know, pride in in service to country. When I commissioned as a Lieutenant in the Air Force, my my mom um, read me my commissioning oath and, and commissioned me as an officer. My my dad's dad, the chief, gave me my first salute, and my mom's dad wore his uniform as well uh, to support. So we we were voted the, the best dressed family at my commissioning ceremony, but I think that's that's just a good example of you know, how how that was just a part of my my upbringing. You know, I and and I think a lot of folks have grandparents who served in in World War II and now now Vietnam. As sadly, the the World War II generation is largely no longer with us, um, but that that sense of kind of family heritage will be within the next generation or so really tapering off. Um, now that we have an all-volunteer service, we're not deploying with millions of, of people on such a mass scale, like as happened in in the world wars or in in Vietnam. So it's something that I, you know, really, really, hold to heart. And, um, I know shaped me a lot growing up for better, for worse, but, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm proud of my family military business, but I also hope that it ends with me.
0: What was it like celebrating Christmas while serving abroad?
1: I had a very odd Christmas celebration. I, if, if you're deployed for a certain length of time, you get a break in between your deployments, uh, called mid tour leave So basically like a vacation from your deployment. And my vacation fell right around Christmas time. Christmas has always been my favorite holiday. It was a big, always been a big family celebration. When I when I went away for college and my siblings went away for college, Christmas was like the one time we all flocked back to the nest and saw the grandparents and all the cousins and aunts and uncles. And I decided with my vacation time, around Christmas in Afghanistan to not go home because I felt it would just be too painful. I was about six months into my deployment and had realized that it was a much more complicated thing than I acknowledged going into it and just didn't know how to talk about it. Didn't want to open the floodgates and start talking to my family and answering questions about it because I just, I was imagining this, you know, horrible mess of emotions from everybody and then saying, okay, bye, you know, I'll see you in a few months or not. Um, And and leaving behind this, you know, this horrible mess. Uh, And I just, I couldn't face that. So I uh, went to Bavaria instead and gallivanted around drinking Bavarian beer and Glühwein and scourging myself on non-military dining hall food for two weeks and then um came back to afghanistan so it was it was a joyous but also like weirdly artificial and and kind of forced happiness over over the holiday season that year um in general you know being being to play for the holidays is hard um we had a really amazing team who supported each other and actually managed to cobble together a Thanksgiving feast. Somehow, I don't know, they worked magic and, and made like, you know, turkeys and pie. And, and we had a, a team Thanksgiving dinner together. And I know that that is not an experience that everyone has while they're deployed. So I felt really, really fortunate to have such an amazing team of people who just, you know, cared and wanted to be there for each other. But for someone who for whom holidays just mean so much and are generally marked by by family time. It's, it's hard to, to not have that. Um, and I, I, you know, decided when I got back, well, like, like the pact I made, made with my mom, I said, I'm never going to miss another holiday and I'll probably eat my words at some day, just out of, out of necessity. But uh, I, I really, really treasure those those holidays and, and they mean even more now after after a year hiatus
0: in what ways did your mental health deteriorate after your return from afghanistan what symptoms alarmed you most how long did it take for you to recognize that you were in a crisis what led to your decision to seek help
1: i kind of operated with the expectation that as soon as i got home everything would be better It just seemed logical, like Afghanistan brings up all of these complicated feelings. There's danger everywhere. You know, horrible things have happened. More horrible things could happen. As soon as I'm out of this environment, you know, the problem goes away. Of course, that's not the case. Your brain can't just extract itself that smoothly. So when I got back first, there was this initial overwhelm. I mean, it's just... To be in a very isolated, contained, weird environment like a military deployment and then to be thrust back into the real world is just horribly disorienting and and tremendous culture shock. Like I was walking through the airport and you've got newscasts blaring and I hadn't watched TV in a year and neon restaurant signs and people in civilian clothes and i was like reaching for my my weapon to to have something to steady my hands on because i just felt like felt like an alien um so after that initial disorientation wore off i i just kept expecting myself to you know snap out of it and just slip right back into to life as it had been a year prior and of course that it's not that simple and for me, the thing I struggled with most was was guilt. I felt like I had participated in things that went against my my moral compass. So for example, as the information operations officer, I was essentially filtering what was happening into what the Afghan and international publics heard was happening. And on the Afghan side, I felt like in my work, I had been referring them to a system that was broken in the Afghan government. It was a system that I I was touting could, you know, solve their problems and send their kids to school and make a hospital accessible. And in reality, a lot of those things just, just didn't happen. And there was a lot of corruption in the Afghan government. And for the American and international publics, I felt like I wasn't sharing the whole story. And they were trusting trusting me and, and the military to be good stewards of their taxpayer dollars and and to take care of their sons and daughters who they were sending to to a war zone. And I, I felt like I wasn't giving them the information they needed to make an informed decision. So I felt a lot of guilt about that. And then I felt guilt about suffering because I felt like because my experience hadn't fit into one of those tidy boxes of you know, what I understood to be a traumatizing experience, being in combat, being involved with military sexual trauma, I didn't deserve to suffer. Uh, you know, I, I didn't, didn't fit into to one of those molds. And I was on a base surrounded by special operations personnel who were deploying all the time and none of them seemed to struggle. And I thought about my mom's deployment and leaving very suddenly for an undetermined length of up to two years and having a family at home. And she never seemed to struggle. So I felt like you know, there must be something wrong with me I must not be cut out for this, and I felt guilty for struggling. What ultimately led me to to seek help was not something super melodramatic. I, it wasn't like you know, I went on a a horrible bender and my my life flashed before my eyes. But I just kind of just got sick of myself, just being being weepy and mopey, and you know, drinking and eating candy for dinner and watching the Twilight movies over and over again, and I just I just kind of yeah got got sick of myself and decided that I needed needed help to snap out of it so I I walked into the the mental health clinic
0: were you satisfied with your experience with psychological help was there anything you wish was different about your experience receiving psychological help did you feel that the providers of mental health care were empathetic did you feel that they were condescending? Did you feel that your emotional needs were understood? Could they have done anything differently than they actually did?
1: In general, I've had a very good experience and I had that initial experience for a few months after I returned to my home base in Florida and got mental health care there. And then I have been um, at different VA systems as I've I've moved around and, and had multiple therapists there as well. Had had a lot of therapy in my day, um, and in general, it's it's been a, a good experience. And you know, I, I know that's not always the case with folks. Um, but, so I feel feel fortunate that that I've gotten hooked up with with good providers, Be empathetic, and you know, help me. I, I think maybe the fact that I'm I'm just a critical thinker by nature, and you know, so spent so much time self therapizing as I've I've written this book probably ha- has helped with that process and and being you know vulnerable with the providers, which I think is an important aspect of of any care. Um, the one thing that that was challenging for me was that, like my preconception of of what it meant to be to experience trauma and to struggle in the military, fitting in those tidy boxes, the the mental health care system was kind of set up around that too. So, I went to cognitive behavioral therapy for a while. And part of that experience is identifying an, an instance of trauma that led you to feel the way you're feeling and kind of rehash that again and again and again as a way of getting comfortable with it. And I didn't have one particular instance of trauma, it was more a compounding of my entire experience in Afghanistan and many different things that weren't like big explosive moments like this therapy was set up to to deal with. So it felt like I didn't fit into that system the way that somebody did who who had that more traditional military experience.
0: How does your memoir advance our understanding of gender in the US military?
1: Well, I speak as a, a woman um, who, who deployed as a woman, though, I, I want to be clear that I am not the voice for all women in the military. And there are as many different ways to be in the military as there are ways to be a woman, as there are ways to be a human. So, from my perspective, you know I, I'm able to share that not not all women's narratives are the same. And, you know, a, a lot of those narratives that are out there from from female perspectives are, unfortunately, related to military sexual trauma, um, because that is a, a very real thing that a lot of women and and men experience in the military. Unfortunately, mine is, is not a story of military sexual trauma. Um, where my gender was most pronounced was in my interactions with the locals. And that's kind of a, a unique story in that, you know, being, being a woman in a a very traditional area like Paktia province Afghanistan the genders are still very segregated so i had the the pleasure of of peeking behind the veil and and seeing women just just being women and that for me was something i, I really wanted to communicate because a lot of my interactions with with the locals were very much driven by an agenda and we we were going into a village trying to get information and so that was our goal with this interaction and people were coming to us locals were coming to us trying to get money or developments in their province so everything was just colored by by politics and economics but my experience with with the women was very different and it it was a place where we could just sit and be together um I unfortunately I did not do very well with my, my Pashtu lessons. So I had to rely on interpreters and a lot of nonverbal communication. But even with the language barriers, there was just this this genuine connection of of being a woman among women that was really meaningful and and makes what what has happened since the the withdrawal of US forces to to Afghan women even more heartbreaking. Because I think about you know those those interactions that we had and and having discussions about you know how, as women, we're we're really focused on providing a better life for for those that come after us, for our children. And I met young women who are, you know, a little younger than me at this point, so likely have children of their own and are are dealing with that that repression in Afghanistan um if if they're still alive. Um, I think about those things. So yeah, g- gender for me came most into play in in my interactions with the locals, and I I wanted to to share that side of things and, you know, share my experience as it was in in hopes that I can add a a, a different narrative to to what it means to be to be a woman and to be a human at
0: war. Can you say more about your recollections of? Women and Girls in Afghanistan. What role do women and girls in Afghanistan play in your memoir? What memories about them influence you the most to this day?
1: Yeah, I definitely have spent a lot of time reflecting on that since since the withdrawal, because women are severely impacted by, by the change in, in leadership there, by the Taliban taking back over. Um, I, I loved meeting with the women I had not a lot of opportunities to, to meet with them because my, my job just dictated, I, I be in other places and focused on other things, but I had one opportunity to sit in on a training class where the PRT was sponsoring, um, a, a class for, for women and particularly women teachers about constitutional rights and women's and children's rights, these things that were part of their society but weren't included in the formal Afghan education system. So they weren't necessarily aware of of their rights or didn't have access to to read a constitution. So a class that was designed to to help them understand that and as teachers then share that information with their students as a way of making it sustainable knowledge that's, that's flowing through the generations. And that was one of the most successful initiatives that we did in terms of the enthusiasm and hope that it was met with from the local population. A lot of things we did had very good intentions and had you know, some good outcomes, but the civics training classes really just were were overwhelmingly just, just full of warm fuzzies. Like we, we would have sent invitations out to a group of teachers and then they would tell other people and it would be standing room only as way more people came than than we were expecting and women would attend the first day of class and then go home and and rave about it to their their parents and come back the next day with their sisters also and the they got death threats but they still came so just that that kind of fierceness to to want to learn and to want to Make things better for themselves, but also for others. That that is what I remember most is that that fierceness and that that genuine human connection between us. As you know, I wasn't a mother at the time, but I, I couldn't help but reflect on on my mother being in the position of of serving with a family at home. And my sister at the time was pregnant with twins, and so I was thinking about these nieces who I'm not going to meet for for a few months after they're born, and just this. This desire on behalf of womankind to like just just make the world a better place.
0: Can you tell us about your personal life before you enlisted in the U.S. military? What were the most challenging moments in your life prior to your joining the U.S. military?
1: My mom's deployment is definitely up there. Um, I mostly I was just I was a pretty fortunate kid had a wonderful family, you know, grew up in the the greater Seattle area, very involved in sports. I was a competitive swimmer and had, you know, delusions of grandeur of getting a, a college scholarship to Stanford and then swimming in the Olympics and then retiring when I was like 30 years old. Uh, obviously that didn't happen. And when when I kind of was was confronted with the knowledge that you know, I was I was a good swimmer, but I was not you know good enough. Um, that's part of what contributed to me looking at alternative college routes such as ROTC. But in general, yeah, I had a, a really, you know wonderful, happy, family-filled childhood. Um, my family's big on on traveling and exploring. you know, I kind of inherited that restless soul. So actually, Travel stories more than war stories are what fills my memories of of growing up. But in a an in interesting way, a lot of the travel stories in my family are kind of revolve around the military. my um My mom's parents actually met um, because of World War II when their brothers served in the same unit, and their their mom arranged for for the families to to meet together at at a lake. And my grandfather was, you know, a a teenage boy and not super happy about being kind of set up with a a young girl. So as soon as my grandmother arrived, he challenged her to a swimming race across the lake, and he wasn't expecting her to agree, and then he wasn't expecting her to beat him. (laughs) So that kind of sealed their relationship. Um, But they were big globetrotters and were actually traveling abroad when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and kind of like the collective denial that that we all had after 9-11 that it would ripple down and directly affect our family with a military deployment just nobody foresaw that that would you know affect my mom and that that she would end up serving in support of that conflict as well
0: what does your book teach us about communication and language
1: oh that it is everywhere and that it's influences who we are and how we see ourselves and, and how we see the world you know just so much of what we do if we think about all of the the communication that we're pummeled with on a daily basis or oh, in terms of our, our direct interpersonal communications but also the messages that we're hearing I mean we, we live in such such a loud society these days and just thinking about you know, how that all shapes our, our perspective on the world. And that's one of the things I really really thought a lot about as I was writing the book is, is how that all shaped me and how to identify, you know, the, the most authentic elements of that in, in my history. So, you know, try to clear out this noise of what the world is telling me about myself and what I am trying to project to the world about myself that isn't actually myself. Um, and and really hone in on what it means to be a young person and be vulnerable to to influences like that.
0: How did you meet your husband?
1: Uh, on Tinder. <laughs> I, I was living in Boston at the time. When I got out of the military, I um, had a few months hiatus and then started my master's in fine arts and creative writing and um, did that in Boston. So i had been living there for a few years when I had actually been married. And and got divorced and, and was just starting to, to date again. And in that interim, online dating and dating apps had really taken off. So I was like, all right, I guess this is how people are doing it now. I'm going to give it a try. And one of the first people I connected with was my husband. We bonded over bacon and cats, which are two very important things to both of us. And um, hit it off. We were dating for a couple years and then I dragged him across the country to my hometown and then the pandemic hit and we got to a point where we were like you know if we make it through this then we'll probably make it through just about anything um and then engaged our pandemic project which is raising twin babies
0: what does the title of your book mean why did you select it among alternatives what does the fine art of camouflage mean
1: so I did go through a few other titles that just didn't didn't end up fitting. I've kind of placeholders until the right thing emerged. And because of that element of of storytelling and just the layers so that we all inherently wear as humans, I thought was captured well in the idea of camouflage. Which of, of course is a, a a big theme in the military, you know, you you camouflage yourself to to blend in, also to, you know, make you a part of this greater organization also to cover up a bit of your individuality and, and, you know, when you put on your uniform, you know, I'm not, I'm not Lauren, I'm Lieutenant Johnson, you know, and I'm part of this, this military unit. So camouflage captured that element and just, you know, all of the the ways that we, we shape ourselves into what's expected of us or, or what we need to be at any given moment. And I have done a lot of that in my life. So writing my book was was in part to kind of reveal all of those layers and and to be really cheesy to uncover myself and emerge as an uncamouflaged phoenix or or something, you know, less melodramatic.
0: As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book?
1: Um into raising twins. <laughs> yeah, I I'd, I'd like to say that I'm, you know, busy at work on three other manuscripts and something else is coming out this summer. But I um, I've really been working to acknowledge my limits as a human being. And I do have a full time job. I work for a a wonderful nonprofit in the Seattle area that does education um, programming. And we've been very busy the last few years adjusting our curriculum to to work virtually and serving students as they need to be served in pandemic times. So definitely keep busy with that and and with with raising twins. And right now, I'm just trying to enjoy the fact that I've been working on something and pouring my soul into it for twelve years, and it's finally out in the world. So trying to to pause and 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 relish that moment as much as I can before, I turn my attention to whatever the next project might be.
0: In what ways did your experiences serving in Afghanistan inform the way that you parent?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think my military experience as a whole helped me to become a better disciplinarian. I I have always been a big softy, and and my strength has been in, in motivating and staying positive, not so much in... Showing a hard line and setting limits. Um, but as you know, someone in a leadership position and, and in the military, certainly you have to know when to lay down the law. So I think that will serve me well as a parent and and, and already has. I think any kind of worldly experience you know, certainly doesn't need to be as extreme as going to war just really is helpful to gain perspective on on life and other cultures and our own culture, and I want to make sure that I expose my children to this, the the diversity of humanity, and you know their their great privilege of of being born in in the the time and the place where they are, although it's certainly far from perfect, and you know make them aware of. The responsibilities of that privilege and also all of the nuances of of the greater world and just to be be aware and and be empathetic.
0: What would you like to teach your daughters about trauma and about suffering when their turns inevitably inevitably come in life?
1: Oh, that's it's such a hard thing to think about but but so important as a parent. Thankfully I have a few years to prepare myself. Of course, I, I would love to say I just want to, you know, I don't want them ever to get hurt. But of course, that's not realistic. And I know that it's not also not healthy and not, not responsible to to shield them from from pain, or from the complications of the world. So I, I want to, you know, I'm going to have to trust my intuition and, and have those conversations w- with the support of my husband. Uh, he's a you know, very very thoughtful guy as well um, pre- pretty emotional guy so I'm sure we'll do a lot of sobbing in those conversations. but just you know help the the girls understand that that suffering is part of life and and be just open and honest about the ways that that we have suffered and the ways that other people suffer and you know hopefully hone in on lessons of of resilience and and empathy and and just that we're we're here to to support them
0: thank you for your time today this was my hallowed honor this book is extraordinary i would strongly recommend it to all of our listeners and would like to note how much i personally loved this book and how blessed i feel for the time together with you that i shared during the course of our dialogue
1: thank you so much ari i really appreciate the time to talk with you and yeah, thank you again for, for reading my book and and just, I'm, I'm really glad that you found it meaningful and hope some folks out there listening do too.
0: Thank you wholeheartedly from the bottom of my heart. To our listeners, I am your host today on New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. Today, it has been my privilege to be in dialogue with Air Force veteran, Lauren K. Johnson. She is the author of The Fine Art of Camouflage, a memoir published in Liberty, North Carolina, by Millspeak Books 2023.